Hi, hi, hello, guys. I am Rui, and this is Macabre Ramblings, a mystery type <laughs> full ramble, part two. So hi, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somehow I don't know why, but I feel like I haven't recorded for so long. But the last episode was just last week, so what the heck? But anyway, <laughs> just a random fact about my mood at the moment. But you know what? I'm going to try my best to make this a decent, decent episode, even if I feel like a little bit, I don't know, weird. And oh, if you hear like the sound of rain in the background, it's because it is raining. It has been very rainy these uh, last couple of days. I think it's just the climate and maybe there's a storm. Anyway, I have to record. So if you hear like the rain at the background, it's raining and I'll try my best to like take it off the podcast if I could, you know, take off the sound of the brain but if i can't it's just going to be part of the background music <laughs> so yep now this is the part two of the dyatlov pass incident and in the part one i talked about the hikers and kind of like a very brief background of the hikers and then i talked about the hike itself what happened when did they disappear and what are their states when they were found? That's the uh, things that have been discussed in the part one. And now in part two, it's mostly theories trying to explain what the heck had happened to them. But first, before we go to the, to the theories, let's talk about their funeral first. So the first hikers that were found were the ones who were buried first. And they were Yuri Doroshenko, Zina Kolmogorova, Igor Dyatlov, Rustem Slobodin, and Yuri Krivonishenko. So the first four, they were uh, buried in Mihailovskoe Cemetery, and Georgie was buried in a separate place in Ivanovskoe Cemetery. So one of the students in UPI, UPI is mostly... The university that the hikers went to so according to a student in upi that also participated in the search operation for the hikers his name is yakimenko he said that after they were found and the funerals are going to happen he hung up they hung up an announcement of the funerals in the foyer of the main building of the university Half an hour later, he was then summoned by the party committee of the university where the secretary approached him and kind of like scolded him for the disturbance, my goodness, disturbance, and made them remove the flyers. They refused, of course, because it's just not respected, respectable, respectable. Anyway, it, it's not 
it doesn't feel nice to just take down flyers for a funeral, <laughs> you know? So they refused, but even if they did, someone took them down anyway. And they felt weird about the reaction of the party committee because this is just, you know, people died and the least you can do is pay respects to the people that have died. But they reacted in such a way. And so uh, Yakimenko thinks that maybe they were afraid of something. So uh, on March 9, when they were going to bury the four people at that day, and Yuri would be buried on another place which they found weird because apparently Yuri for some reason or another is going to be buried in another cemetery although his parents did not object to his son being buried with the others so at first I thought that maybe the family has you know they have their own plot of land where they uh, plan to have all of the family members in that plot of land but I found this weird because apparently the parents said yes to their son being buried with the other hikers. So what reason was it that was the reason behind Yuri being buried somewhere else? So on the day that they were, bury they were going to bury the hikers, there was another announcement that was hung. But it was immediately taken down by someone and this made the people angry, the UPI students angry. And because they were outraged, outraged, they were in disbelief that the reaction of the reaction of the party committee, they decided that everyone is going to go to the faculty and walk around each classroom while they were going to the faculty and inform the students about the hour and the place of the funerals, which is amazing because they were being like held back. Funeral flyers are getting taken down so like announcements are being uh oh no i can't talk again today uh, the funerals are being silenced so they decided that if they can't go with the funerals uh, if they can go with the flyers to announce the funerals they're just going to announce it themselves and they did which is like <laughs> such a boss move honestly <laughs> The authorities not be, being able to stop the announcement for the funerals they ended up surrounding the funerals with fog like you know they made fog what the heck actually at first the cpsu i think it was the ones who were handling the case <laughs> a group that was kind of handling one part of the case they tried to persuade the parents of the hikers of the dead hikers to bury their children quickly and quietly see they're trying to hide something but they didn't want to they didn't like to and so they were reprimanded so when it became clear that the family isn't just going to quickly and quietly bury the bodies the communists of russia they did not manage to gain full control of how the funerals would be would be organized because the family wants to have their own proper funerals when the commies did not manage to gain full control and to and the, some flyers actually managed to escape their censorship and this managed to notify people about the place and time of the funeral they tried their very best to you know hinder the funeral even further 
because on March 9, 1959, on the day of the funeral, a crowd of thousands had gathered for the burying of the bodies. And so they have a procession going to the Mihailovskoe Cemetery. But when they got to the cemetery, they were not let in through the main gate. People are like hindering them, stopping them. But they managed to go into the cemetery by disassembling the fence on an adjacent street <laughs> like we're going to finish with this funeral no matter what you cannot stop us and that's the vibe that they're going for and that's the vibe that i am supporting <laughs> so there had been like kind of like a attempt on an explanation as to why the government is trying its very best to obscure the details of the funeral to stop people from crowding and looking at the funeral because at that time, the Soviet Union, they did not want like negative press to come out at the news. So when, when ships sink, when rockets and aircrafts that they were making did not, you know, work, they were not going to post that in the news and they only want to have like achievements and heroism over the news. And this news of the nine hikers just being found dead in the mountains isn't good news and so people assume that this is why the news about them is being hindered it's being silenced and so any catastrophes any social unrest and mass deaths were regarded by the authorities as quote-unquote ideological diversion and these were stopped as quickly and harshly as possible so that's one kind of like assumption as to the reason why and so let's go to this very weird witness testimony of a person called Rima Kolevatova that is given on April 14. And Kolevatova is a sister of, oh no, I didn't write it down. Uh, it's a sister of one of the male hikers. She said that her mother was in all funerals of the group, all of the hikers' funerals. Her mother was there. And her mother told her that the faces and hands of the hikers are all dark brown and if you can recall and if you have listened to part one the colors of the bodies some of them have different colors some of them have bluish purple some of them bluish red there's one that has a tinge of green it's like different colors in their bodies and i am person personally not an expert into like colors of corpses and on their manner of death so i can't really comment on anything about that but i found like the difference of the colors is very interesting i have heard in one article trying to think of a reason why the colors are changing and they think is a bad mortician job like a factor of this but as i have read through a couple of articles nobody had really like put down an explanation so if I find one, or if you find one, if I find one, I'm going to post it somewhere. And if you find one, you could like educate me about the matter because I'm very, very interested on that. So that's what happened in the uh, funerals of the first five hikers. And so let's go to the four hikers that are left and that were found uh, later. So on May 12, Lyudmila Dubinina. Alexander Kolevatov and Nikolai Thibaut-Brignol 
They were buried in Mikhailovskoye Cemetery as well. But Semyon Zolotaryov was not. He was buried in Ivanovskoye Cemetery where Yuri Krivonyshenko was buried. And Semyon's funeral was, was delayed and he was buried a few days after May 12 where the first where the three other hikers were buried. It was delayed so his mother could attend his funeral. Because Zolotaryov's mother was from Krasnodar and she had to travel from there to Sverdrovsk to collect Semyon's belongings. Oh wait, <laughs> rewind, rewind. So actually Zolotaryov's mother had already come to, Sver Sver to Sverdrovsk to collect his belongings in April and this is when the other hikers were found but his body, Semyon's body, hasn't been found quite yet. So she went back to Krasnodar after that and when Semyon was found, she was not in Zvedrovsk anymore. So people think that it is likely that because her mother wasn't there, it is, and Semyon Zolotaryov isn't like a close friend of the hiker. So if you think about that, he is also not known by the family of the hikers because he ha he's just been there as like a sudden acquaintance, sudden like guest. In the group of the other hikers so people don't really know who Semyon is and so because his mother wasn't there when he was found the authorities just ended up guessing the body of Zolotaryov by the process of elimination and so that's another like factor that people think is this really Semyon Zolotaryov is he really who he says he is in the documents and apparently in the recent exhumation <laughs> in the recent exhumation of Zolotaryov's body in April 12, 2018, it was kind of like preceded by a one-year effort to obtain a permit for the exhumation because it was this exhumation was goaded even more because people found out that there was no record of Semyon Zolotaryov being buried in Ivanovskoye Cemetery or anywhere else in Zverdlovsk. So, what is happening here? I'm like very confused. <laughs> Actually, I have read in an article that it was hard to say when his funeral was exactly. I could only like get not a specific date but like a vague. A few days after the funeral of the three other hikers, he was buried. So it's just like there's no specific date that I could find when his funeral was. But some witnesses remember that it was a few days after May 12. So this time, actually, in the funerals and all of that, Yuri Yudin was not called to identify the bodies. And that's why the authorities just ended up doing the process of elimination when they found the last four bodies. Because there's like a weird secrecy in it. Yuri Yudin, actually, according to his words, he was only told 40 years later. 40. He was told 40 years later about the terrible internal injuries of his friends because there was a non-disclosure agreement of some of the people that had participated in the search. So another like very fishy, you know, the more I dig into this incident, the more it gets fishier and fishier. So one of the people that had participated in the search, Korota Koroteev, Korotaev, 
He says in an interview that he and everybody present on the pass had to sign a non-disclosure for 25 years. That is so weird. This is all. Oh, this is investigator Vladimir Korotev. So in 1962, next to the, the graves of the hikers in Mihailovskoye Cemetery, there is a monument erected with pictures of all nine members of the group. So in August 1963, on the pass, a group led by Valentin Yakimienko set a memorial plaque saying, quote, In memory of those who left and did not return, we named this pass after the Dyatlov group. End quote. And that is when the pass has been called Dyatlov Pass ever since. So that's about it with the fishy things that happened in the funeral. I first just decided to skip that part, but for me, to I like. I want to decimate the information because it was very interesting for me. And so I talked about the funerals first. And now let's go to the actual focus of this part two episode. And these are the theories. So at first, the theory is that this was done by the indigenous Mansi people who is usually hanging around there. They were reindeer herders. Reindeer herders. That sounds so cute. They were reindeer herders local to the area and people think that they had attacked and murdered the group because they approached their lands for some reason and this ended up having like several mansi people that were interrogated but the investigation indicated that the nature of the death of the hikers did not support this hypothesis that the mansi people were the one who did the who did the murder who harmed the hikers if you think about it, only the hikers' footprints were visible and there showed no sign of like good evidence of hand-to-hand -hand struggle. So to, to dispel the theory that this attack was made by the indigenous Mansi people, Vozros Denny, the forensic expert, stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by human beings. So I suppose those are the three bodies that has those rib fractures and like severe trauma to their bodies without like the external injuries. It's all internal. He added, Rosdeni added, quote, because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. End quote. And so that's how they managed, how, that's how they ended up dispelling the theory that the Mansi people were involved in this accident and so this is when different theories have evolved a lot of them are scientific some of them are downright supernatural so let's go with the scientific first so this theory is about the katabatic wind so in 2019 so recently a swedish russian expedition was made to the dyatlov pass and after some investigations they proposed that a violent catabatic wind was a plausible explanation for what had happened. So me, if you are like me and do not know what the heck is a catabatic wind, <laughs> I searched it up. And apparently a catabatic wind is a drainage wind and it's a wind that carries high density air from a higher elevation to a higher place. I don't know if you can hear it, but some dogs in my neighbors are 
going insane again so just excuse them i don't know what's happening so <laughs> yeah let's go back to the katabatic wind so the katabatic wind is a drainage wind this is a wind that carries high density air from a higher elevation so from a higher place down a slope under the force of gravity so these winds are sometimes also called fall winds so they're winds that goes down kind of like i could imagine it as like an avalanche but there's no snow it just goes down as wind so katabatic winds can actually rush down slopes at hurricane speeds but most of them are not that intense and many are just 18 kilometers per hour in their speed or less but even if it's rare the hurricane speeds can definitely happen so since cold air has a higher density than the surrounding atmosphere the katabatic wind this is when the katabatic wind can accelerate to the force of a hurricane that's kind of like terrifying you can't see it but it's like rushing down at you with a wind so the strongest of these winds are usually found on drops surrounding like a lot of ice and as we all know that the yatlov pass is siberian winter there's snow everywhere so it's very very cold and these like strongest of winds can occur over cooled mountain areas similar to the topography surrounding the Dyatlov Pass. So it's even if it's rare, this hurricane like strong catapatic winds, it is possible, especially in places with the composition of Dyatlov Pass. Actually, these like winds, they're not like storms where you can see like them building you look at the sky and you notice like this patch of clouds forming and you're like oh it's going to rain or there's going to be a storm apparently katabatic, wind, katabatic winds isn't like that they just suddenly appear very quickly so you, it's not going to give you a warning to like go and find a more uh solid shelter in a tent, if it's hit by a katabatic wind that is strong enough, it is not built for extreme winds, so it would swiftly swiftly tear to, piece it, to pieces if they're confronted with a strong katabatic wind, unless it was saved in seconds. So, apparently, as I've said, katabatic winds that are very powerful are rare, but when they hit, they can be extremely violent so there were as there was this case in 1978 at anaris mountain in sweden and in this case there were there were eight hikers that were killed and severely injured and this is because of a violent katabatic wind so that's an evidence that yep this happens it's something that is scary and it happens so looking at the case of the the dyatlov group the Russian, Swedish-Russian expedition thinks that they would run out of the tent when the katabatic wind hit. They will conceal the tent and wait out the uh, situation elsewhere because they were like at the path of the wind and they have to go somewhere else and wait it out. And the, later then would they have to regain the, their equipment that would have been like buried in like a thin layer of snow at this point. So if the event continues for a longer time and the temperature outside is very very cold and they had to get out of the tent without being prepared for being outside for too long the consequences could be very deadly and uh, so looking at the tent there was a recollection 
if there was a flashlight left turned on at the top of the tent. And this, the, the, Russian, the, the people of the Russian expedition, Rus- Swedish Russian expedition, thinks that is, it, it is possibly left there intentionally by the hikers so they could find their way back to the tent once the catabatic winds had ended. So the expedition proposed that the group of hikers constructed two shelters, one of which had collapsed. And this is the one where the people call it a den. And this is why there are four hikers just buried under the snow with the severe injuries because the shelter had collapsed on them. So the extremely high winds would also be very make it very hard to stand upright. And it is possible that there are ice sheets or other flying objects going about. Apparently, extremely low temperatures could theoretically create body trauma. So that's how they try to explain the body trauma on the hikers' bodies. However, some of the injuries found on the last four recovered bodies is kind of like hard to explain, even if they have like their own explanations. Kind of like people are finding it hard to like agree with it. Especially the radioactivity in the clothes. It's kind of like, and also thinking about the lights and spheres that were reported in the sky. Because some people reported some lights and spheres in the sky at the time of the incident. And the catabatic winds could not possibly have done that. So that's some cons on this theory. Now let's go to another, another theory. It's a scientific one as well. And it's the infrasound theory. So this hypothesis was popularized by Donnie Agar's 2013 book called Dead Mountain. And in this book, he tries to explain the incident by a vortex that had happened in the mountain. And this Carmen vortex, it can produce infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. So in fluid dynamics, which... I'm going to say this now, I know absolutely almost nothing about. <laughs> so in fluid dynamics, a Carmen vortex street street, a Carmen vortex street is apparently a repeating pattern of swirling vortices. And this is responsible for the unsteady separation of flow of a fluid around blunt bodies. So due to the topography of the mountain, it is a perfect dome shape and the fierce winds that blow through the pass could have been warped as they struck the blunt surface of the rocks and just you know the blunt surface of the mountain so the wind which was blowing in a straight line when it was uh, warped it would be twisted into a series of small but powerful tornadoes oh my god it's terrifying which would tear down either side of the pass so these tornadoes, they were spinning fast enough to tear the roofs off of buildings uh, would have created this noise, this deafening noise. So even if they missed the tents, because it doesn't look like a tornado hit the tent. So even if they missed the tents, the noises that, would they, that these tornadoes would make could also produce a more subtle and terrifying phenomenon known as the infrasound. So let's look at what an infrasound is. So the infrasound is the opposite of ultrasound. 
Infrasound is a type of vibration in the air and it has a very, very low frequency that actually human ears could not pick it, pick it up because its frequency is so low. But some studies have shown that it can ha have effects on the human body, infrasound, including loss of sleep, shortness of breath, and extreme dread. So ACAR, it was backed by scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in the U.S., he believes that the combination of the effects of ultrasound, of intrasound, the deafening noise of the tornadoes, and the claustrophobic pitch black tent could very much give like panic attacks, dread to anybody, even if they are experienced hikers. So Aker's theory supposes that the tent, that the tent of the hikers, was directly downwind from the peak of the mountain and far away from the whirling the tornadoes themselves and that's why the tornadoes did not strike the tent but they would have been close enough for the effects to be felt so the effects would be physical discomfort and mental distress to the hikers they would panic they would be driven to leave the tent by whatever means necessary so that's why the tent was torn from the inside and they don't have shoes they just want to get out no matter what and they would then when they run downhill they would have been out of the infrasounds path by then and they would have regained their composure they would have suffered up but in the darkness they would have been unable to return to their shelter so suddenly they find themselves stranded there so there are traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims and agar's explanation of that is that they stumbled over the edge of a ravine in the darkness and they landed on the rocks at the bottom so that is the infrasound theory now the third theory is a little more of a kind of like a conspiracy theory of some sort because it would involve the military and the tests that they do in their you know, military stuff, <laughs> like weapons and all of that. So in one speculation, because there's quite like, there's not, just there's not just one speculation that involves the military. So in one of the speculations, uh, the theorists thinks that the campsite, the place where the hikers had placed their campsite, fell within the path of a soviet parachute mine exercise so they put the mines on a parachute and then they fall down slowly to the ground before explore exploding so this theory alleges that the hikers they were woken up because there are loud explosions everywhere because the mines are exploding and panicking they fled the tent and then they found themselves unable to return because it's dark and they don't have like enough resources with them so they have a hard time going back and after some time because the siberian winter isn't merciful at all some of the members froze to death while they were attempting to endure the cold winter and the bombardment of the mines and the others would be fatally injured by some subsequent parachute mine concussions. Probably they feel the impact of the explosion, not like 
exploding on them but you know the waves of the impact you know the how do you explain it when something explodes really really powerful explosions and then you feel that wave of force so people think that that's why some of them have those rib fractures and looking at the records of parachute mines being tested by the soviet military there are actually records of it in the area around the time that the hikers were there so the parachute mines they would actually detonate while they are still in the air rather than when they strike the earth's surface and then they were and the, the injuries that were that could be produced on human bodies would be similar to those that are in the hikers bodies there are heavy internal damage with relatively little external trauma so that's a signature injury when you're hit by the blast of a parachute mine so the theory this theory it coincides with the reported sightings of glowing orange orbs that people have seen floating or just falling from the sky within the general vicinity of the hikers and people think that the hikers saw these and allegedly took pictures of it potentially some military aircraft or some descending parachute mines so they might have seen them took photos of them and that's so that's why people think that that's why the bodies are manipulated you know the liver mortis isn't on the right side because some of the people from the military might have you know see uh took notice of them and might have suddenly realized that oh no they took photographs of this military test and so they went to the campsite found the bodies manipulated them looked at them a little bit looked at their pictures the cameras and all that stuff might have deleted a few stuff you know so that's why so that's how the theory explains the manipulated state of the dead bodies and in this theory as well their ex uh, their explanation for the injuries in dubinina's in dubinina's bodies they just left these as the doings of scavenging animals they find like the scavenging animals just took her eyeballs took her tongue and all that stuff so that's they chalk it up to just these scavenging animals so that's the first theory that involves the military tests a similar theory a second similar theory it alleges that instead of parachute mines it's the testing of radiological weapons and this is based on the discovery of radioactivity on some of the clothing as well as the, as the descriptions of the bodies you know the different colors and some of the relatives having described the body's colors as having orange skin and gray hair so somebody named vladimir nagaev he is a veteran of the kgb and the federal security service of russia he is also the head of the faculty of the military medical institute and a candidate of medical sciences that's <laughs> okay an achiever this guy he published a trilogy in 2018 and here he reveals the mechanism of the death of the Dyatlov group so he has a theory of his own so in his theory he says that the Dyatlov group died while they were while they are participating in a scientific experiment of national importance 
so they were participating in this test. The Dyatlov group themselves, they were launching this, these special purpose radio probes in an area that is unpopulated. So under the shell of the radiological thingy, <laughs> I don't know how to explain this, but under the shell of this thing was a gas with some short-lived radioactive isotopes, 5-sulfur-phosphorus. So that's why he said that radioactivity have been found in some of the clothes. And I'm going to say this right now. Some of these like terms are a little bit of confusing for me. <laughs> so my description might not be up to par as Vladimir Nagayev. Because of course he's an expert in this. And I'm just someone who tries her best to research this stuff. <laughs> so he said that. Meteorological rockets are known to have been used in Mount Ototen, and he thinks that at some point, a missile hit one or more of the radiological weapon that the Dyatlov group is testing, and it spilled this radioactive content, and that's why the, the, the clothes have radioactivity. So after a certain time, some of the highly toxic chemicals that enter a person's body oxidizes and it will quickly disappear from the body and that's why people could not uh, find it in the autopsy so it is proven that the process of oxidation of hydrogen sulfide in the blood occurs very quickly and about 99% of the hydrogen sulfide is gone from the body within three to five minutes so that's quite quick actually it's very quick so the final products that remain after death would decompose after the death. It will quickly decompose and it will just disappear. So because of that, a coroner may not detect this toxic chemical. However, some traces of the effects could remain in the organs of the corpse. For example, some pulmonary edema, edema expansion of the heart, expansion of the borders of the heart, mainly the right half, the fullness of organs, liquid dark blood. And we know that some of the people in the Dyatlov group had signs of damage to internal organs. So that's why he thinks that this might be it. They might be hit by some radioactive component and might have died. And he thinks that the search for the missing group was actually deliberately delayed. So first bodies of the Dyatlov group were discovered almost a month after their death and he thinks this was delayed because this period this missing uh this delayed period would correspond to two half lives of the radioactive isotope phosphorus 32 and it would you know just slowly dissipate that's why it's delayed so the thing would dissipate and would not be found in the bodies so in favor of this theory is the skin of the dead reported by many witnesses to be a, of a dark brown color, which is actually characteristic for phosphorus poisoning. And that's his kind of like a little bit of a technical theory, <laughs> Vladimir's theory. Now let's go to an amateur aviation historian named Andrei Shepelev. And he considers that the group could have died because if it, of a photo flash bomb that was dropped by not a Soviet Union military, but by a U.S. spy plane. 
looking at some declassified U.S. documents, it confirms that in the first half of eight of nineteen fifty nine, there was a secret mission near Nizhnyaya Zalda. I don't know what that is, and it looks like it's hard to uh, pronounce. But yep, uh, ha 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 ha. And according to Shepelev, the U.S. plane could drop a photo flash bomb which due to the mountainous area would explode closer to the ground than expected then this explosion could frighten the tourists so they left the tent on a panic and then they ended up freezing to death some of the tourists could have been injured directly by the explosion however if you look at oh if we go back to Vladimir's theory, the one with the radioactivity for a bit, there's this uh, con or kind of like a part of his theory that could not explain everything because radioactive dispersal would have affected all, not just some of the hiker's equipment. And looking at the skin in here discoloration, people think that this could be just explained by a natural process of mummification after the three months of exposure to the cold and the wind. The initial suppression by the Soviet authorities of the files describing the group's disappearance sometimes is like, people think this is evidence of a cover-up. This is it. The military or like the authorities have something to do with this. But the concealment of information about domestic incidents are actually standard procedure in the USSR and it was not uncommon at all. Then by the late 1980s, all Dyatlov files have been released. Anyway, so in an interview that I found with Irina, Irina Nikolaevna, she is the sister of Yuri. Yep, I think it's Yuri, but he is the, she is the sister of one of the guys. The interviewer asked her what she thinks about the cause of death of the hikers and her sibling. And she replied this, quote, I think that there were tests of new weapons and something, and something went south. They were caught at the wrong place at the wrong time. Namely, it is connected with military equipment. No doubt about it. Nothing else. Avalanche is nonsense. The color of their skin confirms it. I just heard what my mother said. Orange. End quote. And another weird thing about it is that... Her mother, Irina's mother, said that when she was first shown her son in a coffin right at the funeral, she actually did not recognize him because Yuri, her son, had an unusual complexion. Irina said that her mother didn't recognize him at all. It may be that in the coffin was not Yuri, but another person. It's like the mother is like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> I mean, who is he? This is not my son. She does not recognize him at the get-go, which is weird. An interesting fact to consider is that at first, the body of Yuri found under the cedar tree was reported in the radiogram to be that of Zolotaryov. And so it was wrong, you know, he was uh, identified wrong. But when a search party member student, Mihail Sharavin, went, he said that he recognized Yuri Doroshenko immediately. So at that time, Somebody recognized Yuri Doroshenko immediately because he knows Yuri Doroshenko. But when it comes to his mother, 
seeing him in the coffin, the mother does not recognize him. So that's like, hmm, interesting there. Might be like a weird feeling of denial in the mother's side. Like, it's hard. It's going to be very hard to see like somebody in the coffin and that person is somebody that not only you know, but literally your blood and flesh, your son. And that that might be kind of like a weird denial. Your mind, her mind just didn't didn't want to process the fact that what she's seeing right in front of her eyes is something very painful, possibly. And Krivonyshenko's brother. This is another weird thing. In an interview with Krivonyshenko's brother, he said that some members of the search groups talked at at the wake that they saw that the corpses were all black so you see what i say about the weird discrepancies and the descriptions of the colors of the bodies it's so weird like what is that about orange bluish purple and now it's black some say that it's brown like <laughs> uh, that's so weird this is very weird and in a testimony of Krivonyshenko's father from the case files he said this I'm just going to read it he said quote after the funeral of my son on March 9 1959 I had students over at the apartment participants in the search for the nine hikers among them were those hikers who at the end of January and the beginning of February were on an expedition in the north a little bit to the south of Mount Otorten at least the participants of the two groups said that they had seen the light phenomenon that struck them on February 1, north of the location of these groups, the extremely bright glow of some kind of rocket or projectile. The glow was so strong that some of the hikers that were already inside the tent and getting ready to go to sleep were alarmed by this glow, went out of the tent and observed this phenomenon. After a while, they heard a strong so they heard a sound like a strong thunder from far away. End quote. So that's interesting. That's an interesting thing to hear. Like what? What is that glow of light? Maybe the rocket theory has a weight in it of some sort. So when asked what he thinks, Krivonishenko's father thinks what had happened. His opinion is of a different type in a way because of the information that he got from the students that went over to his apartment at the day of the funeral. He thinks about it and he thinks that because there is a fire, hypothermia is a little bit kind of like, it could still happen I suppose, but there's a fire. And he thinks that the only possible solution that the people around the fire does not feed it properly even if there are twigs and branches around them is that they are blinded like literally could not see and he thinks that both hikers found around the campfire gradually lost sight very quickly and although they could maintain the fire while the wood lasted they could not do it after they couldn't see what to do they froze after they were already dead and that is the father's vague theory in my opinion like I think he was just explaining the death of his son because he is Krivonyshenko's father and so he's just trying to 
think of a reason as to why his son had died around the fire with the twigs around them but they did not feed the fire so he just tries his best to like reason it out it out because he is Krivonyshenko's father and I'm sure he knows that his son is experienced he knows what to do to start fires he knows what to do to feed the fire and he probably is baffled at this like fact and so he tries to reason it away that they were blinded he did not provide like additional explanation to the blindness though is it like a flash bomb <laughs> is it like connected to the flash bomb theory or something else i did not see like a further explanation but i thought that it would be like good to describe or just talk about the theories of the actual family members of the hikers because they were the ones who are like directly affected by the death of their relatives and so saying out uh, uh speaking and talking about the theories of the relatives i think it's like pertinent or just like important or something to be placed in this list of theories and so next is the special forces theory uh i mean technically it's like part of the military but it's <laughs> on another category it's a special forces theory and in this theory it is said that the Dyatlov group stumbled upon a military testing area, so kind of like the same as the other one. But in this theory, people think that they were either killed by the Soviet soldiers that are protecting the area, or they were scared into fleeing because there are sounds of nearby explosions. So one possible scenario is that they saw this uh, military equipment, some helicopters flying around, and they were flying around they were flown around by high-ranking officers so this theory was put forward in september 2011 by alexander gulikov so in his opinion semyon zolotaryov isn't who he says he is <clears throat> he points out that the camera found around zolotaryov's neck was not the same camera that he was showing off he was using around the days before the accident so this is a completely different camera and gulikov thinks that the reason for the elimination of the whole group is that Zolotaryov was taking photos of something that he should not be taking photos of. So during the time of the incident, the th the th the th during the time of the incident, the 21st Communist Party Congress was taking place in Moscow, and because of this, it was strictly prohibited for any military equipment to leave its location. And any personal training that is connected with taking out these military equipment was cancelled. Soldiers cannot go on leave and officers also cannot go on leave and commanders are now on round-the-clock duty. So in this environment of the military, the military officers who are friendly with at least one of the top Moscow boss bosses, they went against went against this this role and they had gone hunting in the valley of the ospia river and to go to this hunt they used a military helicopter and as i have if you can recall which i just said like a few minutes back <laughs> what am i talking about i can't talk today a few minutes ago i talked about the rules that they could not take any military equipment outside but in this hunt they took out a military helicopter and Gulikov speculates that the KGB 
were actually fully aware of what was happening, and the plan was put into action under instructions from certain party bosses in Moscow in order to discredit another party boss. So politics, just discrediting another one so they could rise up in the ranks or have like a better reputation or just ruining a reputation of another boss and some of that. So this hunt was filmed with a dated film and the camera was sealed. Some clothes that are marked with radioisotopes were there to help with detecting the location of the camera. So Semyon Zolotoryov was kind of like a spy of some sort. He's going to take pictures and then he's going to seal this camera in clothes with a little bit of radioactivity to help with detecting the location of the camera. And then the operator would leave the sealed camera wrapped in radioactive clothes near the Dyatlov Cache site. And the appointed operator for this mission, Tolikov thinks, is Semyon Zolotaryov. So, go, uh, TLDR. <laughs> it is said that soldiers could not take out military equipment, but a group of them did. And KGB knows that this group is doing that. And so they sent someone to take pictures of this. Pictures of whatever the heck this hunting group is doing. They sent someone to take pictures of this under instructions from certain party bosses in moscow in order to discredit the other party boss like framing somebody or showing people that hey look they're not following the rules and this person that was appointed to do, the, to do this sneaking around taking pictures is semyon zolotoryov so the theory says that on 31st of january the Tayatlov group left the ski track and they moved up to the edge of the forest. They moved away from the Ospia and waded through the snow. Then they returned back to the river valley. This maneuver that they did was kind of like, looks like they were going around something. So they wouldn't, you know, meet somebody along the way. So they just went another way around it. And Gulikov thinks that this something was the military officers. And uh, he assumes that Zolotaryov was seen taking the photographs as the helicopter was in the air. So he was found out and the helicopter. So when the helicopter returned to where it's supposed to go, Zolotaryov and Golikov thinks possibly another person who knows whatever the heck it is that is Zolotaryov doing. He assumes that it's possibly Dyatlov. They quickly return back to the group, acting like nothing is happening. The group then packed everything and in great haste, moved to another less convenient place, making a camp at the foot of the mountain in the hope that they would not be found. So that's why they camped there. Whether the other hikers know about this or not, I don't know. They might have like laid out some excuses and the hikers just went like, yeah, that makes sense. And so they ended up just camping it there. Zolotar Yov, for some reason, did not hide the camera with the isotope marked clothes even if his task was to leave those things near the cache site. And on their return to their base, the officers that were riding the helicopter that had realized that they were photographed uh, doing an illegal use of the helicopter, then sent trusted men back in the helicopter to find the group and do whatever it takes to bring the cameras back. So these men that were sent back found the hikers camp 
on the mountain slope on the 1st of February. So even though the instructions sent said to them were to do without bloodshed, like, please don't spill any blood. The group, the Yatlub group, might have fought back, did some resistance, because a lot of them did not understand what was happening, except for Zolotoryov and what and who Gilikov thinks knows stuff as well, that love. This guy really, really goes hard with his theories. I'm having a hard time like following it. <laughs> so because these men were military men and the Dyatlov group are just experienced hikers, they were easily like beaten up. The military men were well versed in unarmed combat and they knew how to kill without leaving some external marks. So the military men could not have known that the operation involving the taking of photographs was under the control of the KGB, and Zolotaryov would have felt assured that the strength of the organization behind him is strong enough, but events probably got out of hand very quickly, and when the military men saw that they had overdone things, their decision was to not leave anyone alive. Zolikov estimates that at about 6 to 7 a.m. the next day, the men that had killed the hikers have returned because they had to erase their traces and they used broad skis to clear up their own tracks in the soft snow and they just left the tracks of the hikers going away from the tent. It was then, after that, they searched out the bodies of the Yatlov and the other two, Krivonyshenko and Doroshenko, under the sitter. Somehow, Golikov thinks that these soldiers found Dubinina and Zolotaryov still alive and they ended up killing them by pressing on the carotid artery with the use of putties. They then throw them down the snow den. One of these putties was later found near the cedar tree and another one in the gully. So the issue of the illegal use of the helicopter was now about to be disclosed. So the soldiers were like, oh no. We're in trouble. We're in very much trouble. And on top of this, all the members of the Dyatlov group were dead. It was therefore in the interests of everybody concerned. The people just ended up hushing up the whole story because it got so messy. It got it's it's just a messy situation and they decided that, you know what? It's so messy. We can't deal with this, so we just hush it up. Hush it up. Don't talk about it. Don't send any news about this outside. We're gonna cover this up. And that's the theory with the special forces. It's a little uh, complicated, a little convoluted in my mind still, honestly. You don't know how many times I have read this theory over and over again. <laughs> For some reason, it just won't stick in my brain. And I think it shows with my explanation because I'm like, ah, so, so, so they did this? What? They did this? Kind of thing. <laughs> so, yep. That's about with the uh, special forces. Now, the next one would be, I think it's a fairly famous one, or I have listened to a couple of episodes of podcasts and even some YouTube videos that talk about this theory. So it's kind of like a famous theory within the people who knows about this incident. And this is the paradoxical undressing theory. So, the International Science Times posted that the hike posted or assumed or kind of like made their own hypothesis 
that the hikers have just died from exposure because it's so cold they died from hypothermia and apparently hypothermia you know when hypothermia is happening you're in a place where it's so cold and your body is like freezing to death so if you think about it freezing to death you'd want to cover yourself all over with anything that could keep you warm like clothes hug somebody just desperately trying to keep yourself warm but apparently hypothermia can induce a behavior known as paradoxical paradoxical undressing and this happens when the people get and feel so cold that they feel warm yep they feel this burning warmth because there is there they are so so cold and because they're feeling this burning warmth they would want to remove their clothes because they their mind or i think their body is getting tricked that it's so hot when, it, when in reality it is not so six of the nine hikers died of hypothermia it is undisputed that six of the nine hikers died of hypothermia it shows in their bodies it shows in their autopsy however others in the group appeared to have acquired additional clothing from those people who had already died which suggests that they were like of a sound mind enough to just have to add more layers to their bodies and honestly that's about it with the paradoxical undressing like some of them like the people who have been seen without their bodies on is probably uh the international science times thinks that it's probably because they had this paradoxical undressing phenomenon and they took their clothes off and they ended up freezing to death because it's cold even if they're feeling this burning warmth but this theory if you think about it this theory only talks about the death of those people who doesn't have their clothes on when they were found so what happened to the others you know because we see that the other bodies obviously have several layers of clothing with it on them so they didn't feel the need to take them off so if paradoxical di undressing did happen on the other ones what happened to the others so this theory kind of explains only the group of people that show signs that they might have you know took their clothes off themselves so this another theory i am just going to gloss it over because it's another one with not gloss it over like speed through it because it's about a military conspiracy once again and in this conspiracy of course Semyon Zolotaryov is one of these uh is kind of like one of the center people in this theory and this theory is made by Alexei Rakitin he is author of the book Dyatlov Pass and in this book he introduces the version of theories a theory that Semyon Zolotaryov, Alexander Kolevatov, and Yuri Krivonishenko were actually KGB agents and they were on a mission to uncover a cell of CIA agents. So they were supposed to deliver radioactive samples and then take photographs of the Americans, but in this mission, something went wrong and the CIA agents ended up killing the group. So this story may, may kind of like feel like kind of absurd nowadays but apparently back then when the soviet union is still very much powerful there's this state of fear and paranoia back then and this kind of like covered like undercover mission was apparently one of the only ways to spy on 
each other, you know, because there's like a cold war and people are spying with each, uh, spying on each other while not completely going on wars like shooting each other and all that stuff. It's a cold war. And so there's a lot of paranoia and fear back then that there are just a lot of undercover missions happening that we don't know of because because <laughs> it's undercover. <laughs> and so, yep. So according to this theory that there are two or more members of the Dyatlov group that is in the KGB, the rest of the group was probably unaware of the real purpose of their journey, so they think they were just hiking. But the other three members are actually doing something like undercover, kind of risky. So Rakuten's version of events, because there's a lot of theories with... There's a lot of versions of this theory as well, but Rakuten's version is one that is widely spread because looking at his theory it is quite logical in terms of explanation of the most mysterious issues there are radioactive clothes and usage of radio radiation detect detectors there's this gray foam on doroshenko's face there's the absence of shoes and upper garments at least one camera missing etc because i uh, i'm pretty sure that his theory is like more uh, complicated than what I am saying, so if you want to know all about his theory, read his book, The Yatlov Pass, because if I explain all the theories in depth, I think I could make like a whole new podcast for that and not just an episode, so I'm just trying to, you know, uh, point out the gists and not completely like dive myself into the information because we're not going to <laughs> We're not going to finish, guys. We're not going to finish this in just two episodes. So Rakuten's story says that a conflict ensued. The CIA agents versus the Dyatlov group. There was a fight and the entire group was murdered, was massacred. The friends of the Dyatlovs, they were not like convinced of this. They think that this theory is kind of like a red, a red herring, something that would distract other people's minds on what exactly happened because all of this is just bullshit and all of that. But uh, these are just additional information, kind of like bonus facts that I found that is attributed to this theory and that we all, uh, I have explained already about Semyon Zolotaryov's identity or, you know, the controversy when it comes to his identity and his tattoo that people that his family members think that he doesn't have a tattoo but the body that underwent the autopsy has a tattoo in it and his tattoo is honestly in my eyes it looks like just a mixture of letters it's the tattoo is d-a-e-r-m-m-u-a-z-u-a-y-a darmuazawaya <laughs> And I don't know what it means, and apparently until this day, this word remains untranslated into any known language. So people don't know what this is about in Semyon Zolotaryov's, you know, body, the tattoo. And people, and like, it's not hard to think that maybe it's because he's part of a KGB. Is this something like a secret thingy? You know. <laughs> and looking at Alexander Kolevatov, he was... Uh, he before transferring to the physics technical department at the UPI, he actually worked in Moscow as a laboratory assistant in a top secret scientific facility. It is an unnamed atomic institute known as PO Box 
3394. So another like, hmm, he worked into something top secret might have, you know, connections to a top secret organization as well. And looking at Yuri Krivonyshenko, I've already talked about it, but, you know, he worked in a plant where a massive nuclear disaster happened. This apparently is only second in severity to Chernobyl. Chernobyl? So that's, that is a disaster. And Alexei Rakhdin is certain that this peculiar, like, group of people were gathered not because it's a coincidence, but because they have a mission to do together. And that's about it for this theory. <laughs> As I've said, if you want to know, to know more about it, you could read the book. And now we go to the a little bit more of the uh, not as technical as the military stuff, not as like conspiracy heavy type of theories. And this first one is that the hikers were actually mistaken as gulag fugitives because back then there's gulags, you know, like labor camps. And um, I haven't like completely researched it, but I have watched a couple of videos describing gulag conditions and they were not good. There are deaths in a lot of gulags. And so if a group of people were mistaken as fugitives, as people fleeing from a gulag, it wouldn't be like impossible to think that they have been killed because of that. So there's one private private investigator who spoke to a former serviceman in the area. He was the one who thought that the hikers could have been killed after they were mis they were mistaken as escaped prisoners from a local gulag prison camp. Or alternatively, they were killed in a quote-unquote cleanup operation after a series of military exercises. So Siberia at the time of the incident was a land of the gulag. It's still a land of a gulag. The closest one was Ivdelag, and this is situated just a few miles from the site of the incident. Although there were no escapes around the time, they could not see like escapes in the documents at the time. It doesn't mean that it could not have happened. Maybe it's not just written down, you know, because <laughs> I don't know. Documents just weren't made. That's possible. Furthermore, Yuri Yudin, when he was looking through the belongings of the group, he found that there's this piece of clothing that did not belong to any of the members of the group. This piece of clothing is called the Obmotki. Apparently, it's a wide piece of clothing that are wrapped around feet or legs to keep them warm. They have this distinct shape and made from a particular material. So it's hard to point out from all of the belongings. And this was widely used among the soldiers in the 40s. And later it was wildly used, wi wildly, <laughs> wildly used. Like they just, <laughs> they just twirl it in the air wildly. No, no, no. It was also, <laughs> later it was widely used among the prisoners of Stalin's concentration camps. So nobody knows how this piece of cloth got there. And nobody knows how it disappeared from the evidence room, but apparently it did. So, mm-hmm, mm -hmm. Fishy, very interesting, very interesting. So the next theory is actually the very first, like, theory that I have talked about, where people think that this is 
done by the Mansi people, the indigenous Mansi people that was living near the area. So actually in the second week of the investigation, this is the pre pre prevalent theory as I have said. So somebody from the Dyatlov case who worked on the Dyatlov case, his St. Petersburg investigator, if Ev oh no, <laughs> Evgeny Vladimirovich Buyanov, he said that what made the native Mansi people strong candidates back then is that there was a Mansi Chum, Chum, C-H-U-M, and this is a temporary dwelling used by the tribe, and northeast from where the Dyatlov group had pitched their tent, there was one of those Mansi Chums around, there's also a trail leading to the Chum, and it was passing 200 feet from where the Dyatlov group had camped. So it was not hard to think that, oh, maybe there is a Mansi group of people there. So that's how they thought what had happened. And that's why, that, and that's why the prevalent theory at first was that the Mansi people were the ones who were the perpetrators of this incident. And also the Mansi knew the area well because they hide there. And they definitely had the skills to hide their tracks. And they were very used to just hunting down and killing animals. So back then people think that, yeah, that's kind of like they have the skills for it. And Mansi are proud and secluded people. And they consider these mountains where the, where the hikers are hiking their hunting grounds. So people think that maybe they have an altercation, kind of like a fight of some sorts. And it ended up into a physical fight, a physical battle, and the group unfortunately had died from that. Especially back then, there were rumors that were circulating that a woman geologist that was tied and thrown in the lake in the 30s was done by the Mansi. This, <laughs> and the reason for her death was that she had desecrated one of the Mansi shrines. People don't know if this is fiction or exactly what had happened. And there are no documents introduced to back up this story but this fueled the theory even more that the Mansi people were the ones who were behind this incident however however there are a lot of inconsistencies to think about when it comes to this theory and one of these inconsistency inconsistencies is explained by the quote from a witness report by Pavel Makhtiarov and he is a Mansi native he says quote Everyone goes in this mountain, Russian men and women, Mansi. There is no special prohibition to hike the mountain. End quote. Because some theorize that the Mansi talked to the group saying that they shouldn't be there. They're, it's their hunting grounds and all of that. But this Mansi native, Pavel, said that there are no special prohibition to hike the mountain. So there is no reason for the Mansi people to go and talk to them, warn them, and then end up killing them because they were just standing on the grounds of the mountain. From the interrogation reports, it is clear that there are actually no sacred places in the surroundings of where the campsite was. The theory was based actually on misinformation, so that's an inconsistency, <laughs> a very bad consistency, and the misinformation is on the ritual objects and places significant for the Mansi, there was a complete lack of understanding how the Mansi practiced their religion. And so because there's a complete misunderstanding, this theory is just 
falling apart. <laughs> it's it's definitely falling apart. And also another inconsistency while the theory was falling apart already is that when you look at the properties of the hikers, there wasn't really anything stolen. There was not any like stuff that was stolen that could be a good help for the Manzi tribe if they were ever the ones who were behind this because life in Siberia is hard. Mansi could easily make the tent and the footsteps disappear, never to be found with all of the stuff inside, but these are left. There are food that was left, and all of these could be used by the tribe, but they were not taken, so this is kind of like, what? <laughs> kind of like an inconsistency. However, back then, at first, this contradiction, all of these inconsistencies, was not like a considerable hindrance for the investigators. At least not on the first stage of the investigation. Because, you know, the temptation to blame this on somebody else very quickly. So the case, like, closes quickly. Like a open and shut case. It's so tempting. And so they tried their very best to pin this on young Mansi hunters. And, they were, and some of them were even arrested and interrogated in March 1959. And unfortunately, it's hard to say what had happened to them because back then, it was so easy for the Soviet to just, you know, produce evidence, uh, you know, <laughs> quote-unquote evidence. But the investigation in the second half of March made a surprising turn for them, you know, even if they have, like, young Nancy hunters in their grasp. That's when the first half of the investigation, the first half happened when people found the first group of hikers. So they think that this is the Manzi hunters doing interrogation, interrogation. And then they found the second group of hikers that had these very weird like circumstances when it comes to their death. And so this made, this put the investigation kind of like, hmm, I think we're wrong type of feeling into this investigation. And... I still don't know what had happened to the Mansi people that had been caught. Hopefully they were let go and not, you know, framed in some other ways. Hopefully they were just let go. They were innocent. I think at least they were innocent. So the, another theory is all about mushrooms. Yep. <laughs> it's all about mushrooms. So this mushroom in focus is fly agaric. And it is very toxic, but apparently they become least, less lethal when they are dried out. Conveniently, they grow most commonly under pine trees, because apparently their spores travel exclusively on pine seeds. So the shaman of the tribes would often hang them on lower branches of the pine tree that they were growing under to dry out before they take them to back to the village. And apparently, this is all about the shrooms because I find it interesting and kind of like, Oh my god. <laughs> because another way to remove the fatal toxins from these mushrooms was actually to feed them to reindeers. And the reindeers eating the shrooms would not die, but they would get high. They would get high. They would, <laughs> they would like sudden from eating them. And then they would pee. Because their digestive systems would filter out most of the toxins, making their urine safe for humans to drink. Yep, and why would humans drink that? You ask me? To be high. <laughs> they drink this rain reindeer urine to be high. 
you're welcome for this very like added information in your brains you could like say that as a bonus fact somewhere <laughs> in fact actually reindeers like fly agarics so much because they get they could get high that they would eat any snow where a woman who were a human who had drank these mushroom lace urine had like peed themselves so they drink this they get high they peed themselves and the reindeers love this fly agaric mushroom so much that they would eat that snow <laughs> and the circle would just continue so yep that is the mushroom that we're going to focus on in this theory so there are two theories that i have listed on what people think had happened so in the first theory uh, a woman named Svetlana Oz, in her book, Don't Go There, believes that Kanti, Kanti, Kanti hunters, K-H-A-N-T-Y, that Kanti hunters had taken the agaric fly to get themselves high and they got into this killing mood. They were high and they want to kill. And in this mood, they ended up killing Rustem Slobodin with a head kick. <laughs> <laughs> yep yeah, just just bear with me here with a dynamic head kick and they inflicted the chest injuries to yuri doroshenko Lyuda dubinina and semyon zoletaryov by jumping on them they jumped and bounced on the chests and that's why they have these broken bones broken ribs yep those vetlana claims that they wanted to avoid shooting so they would be able to fall to uh, trick investigators. And that's why they also sanitized the tent area. They covered their footprints with snow and, make, and made cuts on the bodies of the hikers. So more like trickery. And that's the first theory. <laughs> a little bit like... Uh, I'm so sorry, but it's a little bit on the ridiculous side, but I guess there's like more weight in this theory if I read her book, but this kind of summary of the theory is quite interesting. <laughs> so the second version of this theory is that the group may have been the ones who ate the mushrooms themselves. They were the ones who ingested the mushrooms, either intentionally or unintentionally, and they suffered delirium and sweating with acute doses and this would account for what appears to be the bizarre behavior of the group you know getting out of the tent by ripping it from inside uh, starting the fire but not being able to feed the fire to the point that they had died they did this they did that the bizarre attitude this could be an explanation that they ate the mushrooms themselves but my brain kind of like <laughs> cannot accept this completely in a way if i think about it because they are they are experienced hikers and while i am sure they don't know every single plant in the book in the world they would know that eating mushrooms willy-nilly is kind of like risky and they also have food so i don't know that's why it's i find it hard a little bit hard to swallow this theory but it's but it's an interesting one so I added it here. So the next one. I'm sure some of you guys have already thought that this could be part of these lists of theories because of the bizarre deaths and the unexplained stuff that had come up in the investigation. And this is a theory of 
the UFO. That the aliens are the ones who had done this. So, actually people referred to the number 33 photo that had been taken. They call it the number 33 photo. And if you looked at it, it kind of looks like a dark... Well, it's pretty dark. You can't see much of it. But there's like, you know, when you shine a flashlight and there's like spheres of orb-like lights. So, yep. I'll post the picture in Instagram so you could look at what the, this photo actually looks like. It's kind of like, yeah, it's an interesting but pretty vague photo. So looking at this photo, the conspiracies think that a UFO, they managed to take a photo of the, UFO, of the UFO and Lev Ivanov, a man who was in charge of the investigation at the Dyatlov Pass actually said in a 90 in an early 1990s interview to a local journalist he said that during his investigation he and EP Maslenikov both noticed that the pines in the forest were burned at the top so that's interesting the pines were burned at the top he also claims that AP Kirilenko member of the Soviet Congress, along with his advisor A.F. Ashtokin, forced Ivanov to take out any reference to any unknown flying objects or other strange phenomena. Interesting. And surprisingly, Lev Ivanov is actually someone who led a theory about UFOs. And in, a 19, in 1990s, when he was already a retired prosecutor, he published an article, quote, The Enigma of the Fireballs, end quote. And in this article, he admitted that in spring of 1959, because he was under pressure of his higher-ups, he withdrew various key materials from the case that indicated the true cause of the accidents, the fireballs or a UFO. So he said this, uh, he wrote this in the article, I assume it's translated from Russian. It's, quote, When E.P. Maslenikov and I examined the scene in May, we found that some young pine trees at the edge of the forest had burn marks, but those marks did not have a concentric form or some other pattern. There was no epicenter. This once again confirmed that heated beams of a strong, but completely unknown, at least to us, energy, were directing their firepower towards specific objects. In this case, people acting selectively. End quote. It is worth noting that later on, Kirilenko, the, uh, one of the people who pressured Lev Ivanov to go and hide and not put focus on any document with UFO or fireballs in them, Kirilenko, that person, has had a interest a pretty profound interest in ufos and he even received memos about sightings of unidentified objects from the chairman of the kgb andropov too interesting ufo do you guys think that that's possible i myself am 50 50 on aliens i mean i would like to think that no I mean, it's possible that we're not the only ones in the universe. The universe is vast and it's kind of like 
pretty weird to think that we're the only ones who are like sentient but also it's kind of like hard to think that they found us in a way because i don't know <laughs> i kind of like believe in ufos but i find it hard to believe at the same time if you guys understand what i mean you know <laughs> so the next theory is another version of the fireballs in the sky and these are secret rocket launch launches and some people that doesn't think that the fireballs up high or like the spheres of light that people saw aren't ufos they think that they are rockets and actually there is a radiogram that said that there was a rocket that was launched on the first of february and that's like not far from what people think the incident had happened and uh vladimir korotev an evidence of what of a rocket launching had had managed to reach him he said in an interview or an article but he said quote many years later i talked to some scientists from korolev's circle the office of academician <laughs> i don't even know how to talk anymore the office of academician Rosenbach, to be exact, it was hinted to me that, so they say, there were some tests, rocket launching tests, being done. End quote. All the requests sent to various launch sites by researchers trying to learn if there are an actual rocket launch on the day of the incident, at, and if there was, what time, when did they launch it, where did it hit, it yielded no results the requests yielded no results and because of that they did not know if there were any rocket launches in the soviet union from the first to the second of february and since the time actually of the search party when the missing hikers were still missing there were rumors of a secret training ground located somewhere near the site of the incident locals still say legends where there were meetings with military patrols in the middle of the hillsides and that there are holes in the hillsides sealed with concrete and the sound of a train that comes from under the ground is heard. So it became kind of like an urban legend that maybe there is a testing site somewhere there and they're testing different weapons and all that stuff and rockets is one of them. And there is a journalist from Yekaterinburg named Kizilov Gennady Ivanovich and he is one of the most avid advocates of a theory that involves a staged crime scene and he believes that the major inconsistencies and conflicting testimony of the witnesses and the rescue team speaks of something much more sinister than sloppy investigation and he believes that the Dyatlov group have witnessed some kind of secret trial or experiment that no one was supposed to see and they were then deliberately killed by the military forces. Kizilov concluded that the whole rescue operation was a farce. He thinks that it's bullshit and he suggested that a few days prior to the arrival of the search parties, there were stage workers on the scene of the crime to prepare what was to be found by the searchers. So in order to avoid the disclosure of secret facilities and to hide their crimes, the military and the KGB removed the dead bodies from where they actually died and then brought them to where they were found. 
the entries in the diaries of the group because they had written like journals and in the at lovepass.com you could read like excerpts from their journals if you want to so entries in the diaries of the group that was describing their route Kizilov believes that this was deliberately edited during the course of the investigation so suspicions could not be raised some rescuers and commentators say that the tent was pitched up in exactly the right manner it was just like you know torn damaged but it was pitched in the right manner but others say that to pitch the tent on the slope of the mountain when the trees were so close by was not the mark of experienced climbers this as i've said in the first part where they pitched their campsite has become controversial as the investigation goes because it is a weird place to set up camp they're in a slope and not like down there where, the, where there are trees and they could have like better shelter down there uh-huh so there's theories that the tent was actually pitched elsewhere but it was then moved to the slope by unknown people who wants to create some kind of confusion so they were staging a crime scene that confuses so many people so there's uh, a discovery of a chinese flashlight on the side of the tent and people think that this indicate that there are stage workers because the flashlight lay on a layer of snow 5 to 10 centimeters thick but on top of this flashlight there was no snow right if you think that the crime scene has been there for quite some time and snow is like there constantly falling or like it's just there sitting for nature to do whatever it wants why is there like no snow up top and the people think the people who believes this theory think that this was done to throw off the searchers to make it even more confusing and in a 2008 conference at the Ural State Technical University, together with the Dyatlov Group Memorial Foundation, they decided that military testing was to blame for the accident. The Federal Security Service responded to this that all those involved in the case had long since died. So if you want to prove it, the people that you have to talk to are dead. So well, there is no like proper or not there was no found documents that the rocket testing did not some rocket testing did not happen near the mountain itself there are like documents that soviet armed forces did launch several rockets from baikonur base although the military is claiming that the rockets landed in the north ural mountains so not where the incident happened there are several geologists 70 kilometers from the mountains that saw some glowing and pulsating orbits flying in the direction of the mountain, the dead mountain, on the day of the tragedy. So kind of like, did it really go to the other side of the mountain? Or did it go to where the incident actually happened? And if you think about it, a rocket launch, if it hit, isn't that going to like damage some parts of the surroundings? Or wouldn't it like burn somebody? Or is it? If I think about it too much, it kind of falls apart in my brain. Maybe because I am not an expert in launches of rockets and what they do to bodies and all of that. But it's an interesting theory nevertheless. And so this next one will be very quick. <laughs> Mostly because I just put it here for a little bit of uh, lightness in the vibe. Because I know a lot of the theories are like technical 
conspiracy theory-ish feelings. And this one would be more on the lighter side and that the incident, the crime, the dead people and hikers, it was all done by a yeti. <laughs> yep, I wrote in my notes this one would be quick. <laughs> yep, because there is a documentary in Discovery Channel called Russian Yeti, The Killer Lives. And this made a sensationalist theory out of this mystery. And that's about it. That's why people think that it's the Yeti. I don't know. It's weird. And quite frankly, I saw an article saying that it's a little bit disrespectful because they made it a spectacle in a way. Like they made it like so sensationalist. And I myself don't like that, especially if it's like dead people we're talking about. So that's also one reason why it's quick. People just think that maybe it's a Yeti. They found the Yeti and some people... Uh, point at a photo in the camera because they found like a photo of a person from afar i don't know it looks like there was someone from farther away in the photo and they believe that it's the hikers managing to catch a yeti and the yeti just attacked them and killed them and that's why they died so yeah that theory i don't know <laughs> yeah <laughs> so the next theory we just got like a few theories left don't worry i know there's been a lot <laughs> quite already so the next one is a lightning strike or a ball of lightning because looking at the tent and where it got slit there's a hot spot near the tent and a camera on a makeshift makeshift tripod suggests that the hikers were observing something in the sky at some point at that night. Given that the local Mansi people actually blamed the golden orbs that they saw for the tragedy, and there are repeated sightings of lights in the sky from some reliable witnesses in the same period. Together with that, people think that it is possible that the group ran away from the tent because there was a ball of lightning getting very close to the tent and hovering there just melting the snow beneath to create this hot spot that investigators found was near the tent so trying to run away from this ball of lightning the group hurried to the tree line the forest uh 1500 meters away and they lit the fire there while they were waiting for this ball of lightning to disappear and so if you were like me and wondering how in the world a ball of lightning could like stay that long because <laughs> you know lightning is like like just the one flash of like it's done when somebody's taking a picture of you the flash on the camera the lightning is not different from that when it comes to like the flash of light but apparently a ball lightning is different because this is an unexplained atmospheric electrical phenomenon and this term refers to some spherical and luminous objects which can be sized just like a pea a pea sized to several meters and it is usually associated with thunderstorms but it lasts considerably longer than like you know the split second lightning bolt my gosh, I don't know what's happening outside. I'm talking about the lightning bolt and I'm sitting here in my room recording and I could hear like air outside. I feel like it's gonna rain so hard. 
The theory then describes that the two people that had died near the cedar tree was due to a electrocution event. Maybe there was a normal lightning strike or the ball of light the ball lightning, not ball of lightning, it's ball lightning. Or the ball lightning like you know hit them that's why they had burnt hair they had bleeding head orifices they have burns they have burnt clothing and there are tree damage near and the subsequent four deaths in the ravine was due to an explosion event near the den again due to probably a more powerful lightning strike or the ball lightning so this theory suggests that the ravine lightning strike the one where Dubinina and the three other men were found hit close to the den and this vaporized a substantial quantity of the stream water that had frozen there. Apparently, snow and ice can produce 300,000 amps and temperatures several times hotter than the surface of the sun. This is like positive polarity strikes, don't ask me. Personally, I just wrote this down because it sounds interesting but... If you're going to ask me a better explanation, I'm not going to be able to give one. <laughs> so because there's snow and ice, it created an explosion amplified by the ravine because it's confined. You know, there's like this space in the ravine and the explosion was amplified and this threw the den and its occupants 6 to 10 meters. And this resulted into the blunt force injury similar to a car accident. Or some like just trauma on the ribs on the chest and now looking at the three members that died in two groups rustam slobodin was injured and he had to be returned to the tent and he was being assisted by zinaida kolmogorova you know the three people that were found like different meters away from the cedar tree dayatlov zinaida and slobodin so this theory suggests that slobodin was injured and he was getting assisted back to the camp by Kolmogorova. But due to the snowdrifts and the high winds, he collapsed on the journey. And Kolmogorova also collapsed further on due to, due to exhaustion or just, you know, the high winds made her like succumb to it. So looking at Igor Dyatlov, he actually remained with the four in the ravine. Although badly injured, the theory suggests that he stayed alive for some time afterwards. While Nikolai was unconscious, Dyatlov may have stripped the two bodies at the center. He was probably the one who stripped them to provide more insulation for those who are still alive and possibly, you know, gave some of his clothes as well. Sometime later, he had to abandon his post and try to return to the tent. But he died and that's why he was the only member of the group to have like clear signs of hypothermia like you know his body was uh comparatively clean like if you look at his autopsy it just says that yep this is for sure hypothermia there's not much injuries that are like notable it's like this body is deceased due to hypothermia and that's why his body is like that and at first i'm like whoa this theory is weird <laughs> but as I read it through, I'm like, hmm, they did think about like other aspects of the deaths. So yeah, I guess you could say that you could say that they have a pretty good, in a way, ex uh, explanation. So the next theory, and this theory is 
almost done. <laughs> There's just short theories left. And one major theory uh, that I saved for last. And this next theory now that we're going to talk about, this short next theory, this next short theory is methanol poisoning. And looking at the symptoms of methanol poisoning, this may include a decreased level of consciousness. There is poor coordination, vomiting, abdominal pain, and a specific smell on the breath. So decreased vision may start as early as 12 hours after exposure. And long-term outcomes may include blindness and kidney failure. So fans of this theory, they point out the weird behavior of the hikers. They cut the tent up from inside. This kind of like says that they have decreased level of consciousness. They have poor coordination. Uh, they went down the slope abreast like you're, they're holding hands instead of like behind each other. And this meant that they might have been blinded. They cut up branches to make fire while there is dry wood laying under the tree, which suggests that they were blind. There's high amount of urine in the Yatlov's bladder, and this suggests kidney failure. And that's what the fans of the theory point out, particularly when it comes to like evidence or any compelling notable things to think about. So the way that the methanol made its way into the hiker systems has about three versions. The first version is from Galina Tsigankova. And this theory suggests that there is local melting of the snow in February 1959. And the increased radioactivity in the area of the incident may have been caused by iodine-131. And this is methanol spilled over the pass. And how is there methanol spilled over the pass? Apparently, there's an aircraft, AN-8T, that was transporting methanol radioactive solution for research in Vuktil. So that's what the theory suggests, that somehow some of these methanol radioactive solution was spilled over the pass and it got into the snow. And somehow, because there's methanol in the snow, the hikers' bodies unfortunately got these methanol and they had methanol poisoning. However, <laughs> there is no confirmed data of melted snow, increased radioactivity, or aircraft in the area. So that's about it for the first theory. The second one is from Ben Firth. And this suggests that during the evening meal, when the group was hungry and they were thirsty, you know, because they were hiking all day, someone has introduced the methanol-based stove fuel into the food. And this uh, either was done maliciously or just accidentally like, oh, look at this. It's a new fuel that we could use. Let's try this out. But there was no liquid stove fuel at that time. Dry alcohol was known at the time. But it was provided only to official expeditions. By all accounts, the Dyatlov group used only wood for their stove. So kind of like, hmm, not that strong, this one. So the third one, the third reason that has come up is Rostislav Zuravlev. And this theory suggests that hikers carry alcohol for medicinal purposes. And sometimes they drink this in small quantities so they could warm up. And they feel like their body is struggling with like the cold. So since alcohol back then was very hard to find, 
and apparently you didn't complain that he couldn't provide alcohol for the trek but there was a flask that was found in this flask it was only noted that the smell from the content has like dissipated so the researchers actually couldn't tell if this is vodka liqueur or alcohol and if it was alcohol they do not know if it's ethanol or methanol and the theory in summary goes like this the Dyatlov group after they were exhausted after pitching the tent they drank alcohol from their flasks to be able to warm themselves but this turned out to be methanol and not like vodka they were poisoned they were blinded there was a panic and therefore they cut the tent and they ran down the slope blindly but the contradictory contradictory thing with this is that decreased vision may start only as early as 12 hours after exposure if this theory says that they drank the methanol after they pitched the tent i don't think that they're 12 hours i don't think that 12 hours had already passed when the incident had happened so kind of like a discrepancy when it comes to time there oh so the next theory is a mysterious one it's arctic hysteria or mariatseni and this theory became popular after many people started comparing the Dyatlov Pass incident to the Chivruai Pass incident. And the Chivruai Pass incident is the death of 10 ski hikers in the, the Lovozero Massif in the Soviet Union between 27 and 28 of January 1973. So it's years after this incident. So this trekking group they were from the Kuibyshev Aviation Institute, had been hiking the slopes of Lovozero Massif in the area of the pass. So after the group's bodies were discovered, there was an investigation by the Soviet Union authorities, and the investigation determined that all 10 of the ski hikers had died from hypothermia. So the Arctic hysteria phenomenon is actually introduced as a possible cause of the strange behavior of the hikers and the uh, symptoms of this is disorientation lost track of time not feeling cold like walking in a trance other symptoms of this can be aggression and atypical behavior when it, it you know just change of behavior in general sami which is a local tribe Local native tribe, people call it Miriatseni. The Eskimos call it the Call of the North Star. Other people call it the Pibloktok. And the problem with this theory though, it's an interesting one. But the problem with this theory is another interesting one. Because this has only been observed in native people. Just on natives. So non-natives often were the ones who observes this phenomenon and they write reports. But they themselves have actually never been affected so it's weird right so i searched why is that only in the local native people what is happening here so it's actually unexplained or there's no definite explanation some explanations said that these uh episodes of like hysteria was triggered from the stress from the encounter with technology and sudden devaluation of their beliefs maybe technology is in conflict with with whatever they were believing in and they were stressed to the point of having this hysteria some think that this these episodes of hysteria was 
triggered by invasion of the strangers in their lands some people just got stressed with that because it's their land and they uh treasure their lands and the stress accumulates and hysteria happens some people believe that this is from malnutrition and poor education but the fact remains that it affects natives and not hikers so that is the problem here. If Arctic hysteria did affect the Dyatlov Pass hikers, they are not natives though. They're kind of like, hmm, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a major problem in this theory. So I searched even more about the Pibloktok. And it is most often found in but not confined to a certain culture in the polar regions of northern Greenland. Inuit culture. And among the Inuit, these attacks are not considered out of the ordinary. So, people think that the Pibloktok is an abrupt dissociative episode with four phases. There is the social withdrawal, and then excitement, and then convulsions and stupor, and then finally the recovery. So, in the book, Handbook of Cultural Psychiatry, the author Wen Xingzeng provides the following example that he found so there's a mrs a which is a 30 year old woman who has had periodic episodes in the past three years and this happened since her mother's death three years during her first three years ago <laughs> during her during her first episode she was she tried harming herself and this attack lasted about 15 minutes and then when she sobered up, she remembered nothing about it afterwards. The next attack, the year after that, which lasted about half an hour. And in this attack, she ran from her home into the snow while she was tearing off her clothing. So as I've said, there is no known cause for Pibloktok. Western scientists have tried to think that maybe this was also like lack of sunlight. And the extreme cold and most villages in the region back then was desolate. And the cause for this is order in the in the tribes maybe the actual isolation of their group so it's still there's you you see that people are still trying to explain this phenomenon because it's interesting peculiar and knowing the cause might help prevent it so the last theory at last the last theory it's the uh most heavily considered a theory and this is the avalanche theory so there's a review of the 1959 investigations evidence that was completed in 2015 to 2019 by experienced investigators from the investigative committee of the russian federation and this what this investigation was re requested by the families of the deceased and this investigation confirmed that the avalanche the avalanche was it <laughs> and what exactly is like the summarized version of what happened in the avalanche theory in the investigation the icrf investigators one of them is an experienced alpinist or somebody who treks or like you know the wilderness while it's very cold <laughs> they confirm that the weather on the night of the tragedy was very harsh the wind speeds up hurricane force. There was a snowstorm and temperatures went down, reaching negative 40 degrees Celsius. Oh my god, that's so cold. I like the cold. I like feeling cold, but that's too cold, man. 
and the harsh weather at the same time played a critical role in the events of the night, which people have reconstructed as follows. So on the 1st of February, the group arrived at the mountain and they made this large nine-person tent on the slope without any natural barriers such as the trees in the forest. So on the day and a few more preceding days, there's heavy snowfall that persisted, there's strong winds, and there's frost. So the group walking along the slope and digging this tent site into the snow actually ended up weakening the snow base. And during the night, the snow field above the tent started to slide down because the snow base was weakened and it started to slide down slowly under the weight of the new snow that keeps on falling. And this gradually pushed on the fabric of the tent, starting from the entrance of the tent. The group wakes up and they started trying to evacuate in a panic with only some of them able to put on some warm clothes. And with the entrance blocked with the snow, the group escapes by making a hole cut in the tent fabric. And then they went down the slope to find a place that they think is safe from the avalanche only around 1500 meters down at the forest border. So because some of the members only had incomplete clothing, the group ended up splitting. So two of the group, while the ones that were only in their underwear and pajamas, that were found at the Siberian pine tree was near a fire pit. So they tried warming themselves up and they were the ones found to have died from hypothermia. So three hikers, including Dyatlov, attempted to climb back to the tent and that's why they were found like uh, facing the tent, possibly to get some sleeping bags. They had better clothes than those of the people that were left at the fire pit, but their clothing were still quite light and they have inadequate footwear. And that's where their bodies were found at various distances, 300 to 600 meters from the campfire, in poses that suggested that they had just fallen down exhausted while they were trying to climb in deep snow in extremely cold weather. And apparently the, visibi uh, the people think that the visibil visibility at that time with such harsh weather conditions is only around 16 meters. So it feels like you're blinded by all of that snow. So the remaining four there were, that were equipped with warm clothing and footwear were trying to find or build a better camping place in the forest further down the snow. So their bodies were found 70 meters from the fireplace under several meters of snow and with traumas indicating that somehow they had fallen into a snow hole formed above a stream and these were the bodies that were found after two months so why is there like you know no evidence of an avalanche and people reason this away that after four weeks the snow that went down the slope of the mountain was sim was simply just blown off by the strong winds that are actually quite common in the region and this would er inevitably erase all signs of a natural disaster. So on the 11th of July 2020, so it's recent, Andrei Kuryakov, who is the deputy head of the Ural's Federal District Directorate of the Prosecutor General's Office, he announced that an avalanche is the official cause of death for the Dyatlov group in 1959. Later, there is an independent computer simulation and, and analysis by Swiss researchers and this also suggested that avalanche is the cause. The most appealing aspect of this theory is that the Dyatlov party's actions no longer seem quite irrational. 
In 2021, you know the model that was made. A team of physicists and engineers led by Alexander Puzrin and Johan... Oh no! <laughs> Johan Gaume? G-A-U-M-E? They published in Communications Earth and Environment a new model that demonstrated how even just a relatively small sliding of snow on the slope could actually cause tent damage and injuries consistent with those suffered by the Dyatlov team. Though, of course, it's quite, you know, mm, that's quite an explanation. Like, yeah, I could believe that. But there are also inconsistencies that could uh, disagree with this, contradicts it. And the first one is that this place is actually not an avalanche-prone area. The slope is not tall, and it is certainly not very steep. Furthermore, the people who are against this theory suggests that the hikers' diaries report a fairly thin snow cover. However, these facts still does not exclude the possibility of a small avalanche. Next, uh, contradictory is that the location of the incident did not have any obvious signs of an avalanche. And while it could have blown away, been blown away, an avalanche would have left certain patterns in debris distributed over a wide area. So, you know, the, the things that the hikers have. And the bodies found within a month of the event were covered with a very shallow layer of snow. And had there been an avalanche of sufficient strength to sweep away the second party, these bodies would have been swept away as well. And the third bullet point is that over 100 expeditions to the region had been held since the incident and none of them ever had an avalanche happen to them. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. So in the dangerous conditions found in another nearby area, which had significantly steeper slopes, then the Dyatlov Pass were observed in April and May when the snowfalls of winter were melting at that point. During February, when the incident occurred, there were no such conditions, but kind of like how did an avalanche occur there when the steeper ones in more in a, in also dangerous conditioned place did not. So kind of like they're finding like contradictions there. And some analysis of the terrain ter 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 some analysis of the terrain terrain and the slope showed that even if there is like a specific avalanche that found its way into the area the path would actually have gone past the tent because the tent had collapsed from the side but not in a horizontal direction also looking at Dyatlov he was an experienced skier and Zolotaryov was studying for master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain hiking and neither of these two men because they were very experienced they were neither to have been likely to just camp in a place where they think that the potential avalanche could happen. And looking at the footprint patterns leading away from the tent, these footprint patterns were inconsistent of people running away in panic. They were just leading away from the tent like they were walking towards the woods. They were just walking at a normal pace. So those are just some contradictory, contradictory things that people have noted against the avalanche theory though this theory is definitely the one that has been considered as the official one because 
I guess it's the most plausible one. It's not like out, out, out there like UFOs, the, the Yeti, and all of that stuff. It's kind of like nature against humans, and you know, humans can easily succumb to nature because Mother Nature is scary, man. It's scary. So I suppose that's why it's could be the it, that's why the official theory was that. Though of course, there's still quite a lot of people that are not like convinced that the avalanche is the one that had happened because while we have an official explanation it doesn't mean that we know it for sure you know so that's about it for the theories so i don't have much of notes in the aftermath section <laughs> but what happened afterwards besides the investigations and all of people trying to theorize their way into having an explanation in what had happened so in 1999, the Dyatlov Foundation was founded at the Ekaterinburg with the help of the Ural, uh, the Ural State Technical University, and this was led this was led by Yuri Kuntsevich. The aim of the foundation is to continue the investigation of the case and to maintain the Dyatlov Museum to preserve the memory of the dead hikers. So on the 1st of July 2016, there's a memorial plaque that was inaugurated in Solikam Solikamsk in Ural's Perm region and this was dedicated to Yuri Yudin who died in 2013 and the very like uh, effect of it in a way is that one of the major effects of it in like a urban legend-ish sort of way is that when hikers go to the Dyatlov Pass because hikers still go there to trek None of the groups that trek there have nine people, you know, because it just became like a belief thing that nine people, <laughs> that it, it wouldn't be good. So the groups that hike there isn't composed of nine people, either less than nine, more than nine, but not nine, which understandable, actually. <laughs> so, yep, <laughs> I know this has been so long. I have... You know, I have actually stripped away some theories that I have listed down in my notes because I feel like it's already so much. There are actually theories about wolverines because there are animals named wolverines. There's also some in uh, theories that they found like other people that they had a fight with and that's why they ended up dying. The fight escalated so badly, but not military forces of some sort. There's still quite a lot of theories that I didn't put here because there's a lot and <laughs> actually I just gave a summarized overview of everything so if you have like a theory that you're interested in you could research it up. There are a lot of books about this. A lot, a lot. There's also a lot of sites trying to talk about it so there's a treasure trove of information if you want to dig deeper into this phenomenon and the theories that, it, that is linked into this incident and that's about it with this two-parter at last i am done with it i'm not going to dwell like lie down on the bed at night and think that what happened to these hikers <laughs> you know i am done with it and two-parter is also done so yep i hope you found this kind of like fascinating i know it feels more of like the conspiracy theorist vibe at some points but hey this is macabre ramblings and it's not only true crime and paranormal that we're going to talk about 
we're going to delve into conspiracy theories that makes me feel interested as well <laughs> so yep uh so hint yeah how am i going to hint so the hint or kind of like a preview for the next episode is that the angel of death is coming so hide your morphines hide your atropines and you know what sometimes the best private caretaker isn't the best for you <laughs> and so that's it that's a long ass hint but it's also like a preview at this point so that's the topic for the next full ramble it's also a true crime full ramble and yep that's about it if you have any stories that you want me to share or want me to research as a topic of the next episodes you could email me at macabramblings at gmail.com i also have instagram which is macabramblings podcast and twitter which is macarambles it's at m-a-c-a rambles and that's about it i hope you enjoyed this episode in a way and don't forget don't skip meals eat good food snacks aren't bad you know eat some snacks if you want to but not too much always hydrate it's a very very important to stay hydrated take a break take a rest just breathe in breathe out at times it helps a lot especially with a good like mental reset so yep uh stay spooky everybody and don't forget the most important thing say it with me stay safe Bye-bye!